Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik, and today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back Jeremy Roll. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Great to have you back. Jeremy is a uh, guru investor. Uh, he's a frequent speaker at many conferences. Uh, I, I certainly listen to you on um, the podcasts, on, uh, on on conference stages, and you are an expert investor. You have your own portfolio, and you you are kind of guru, expert in your own right, and you're an educator, right? Just, uh, am I missing anything important? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just another investor. I think the only advantage I have is that I do it full time, and I've been doing it for over 20 years. So you, you are a professional investor in your own right for 20 years. So there's something to say about that. Yeah, and it's a very. I know we're going to talk about it. Boy, it's interesting times right now. That's for sure. So let's d dive straight into that. We're recording this during the holiday season, 2023. Uh, 24 looks interesting, right? We, we, we were certainly experiencing quite a bit of volatility in the interest rates. Let's, let's start with interest rates. So uh, just would love to hear your thoughts on what's happening. Uh, are we past Fed doing the hikes? Are we going to start easing? When are they going to start easing? Uh, and then is 10-year trend your friend? Have we seen a friend and there's going to be some kind of retreat? And I know it, it's crystal ball questions, but you know, we're all entitled to our own opinions, right? You, you, free speech. Yeah, that's right. Well, first of all, clearly nobody knows exactly where interest rates are going. Uh, second of all, just to, to give everybody the disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, investment advisor, or anything like that. So just all my perspective as an investor, in my opinion. Um, so uh, what I like to do is try to help predict where things, the highest probability of where things are heading based on looking at the past. And so if you look at the past, let's assume that the Fed has stopped hiking rates because that's the only guideline we can use to actually try to predict the future. Otherwise, it's very difficult to predict. So if you assume that the Fed has now stopped hiking, which I think the market generally believes, could be right, could be wrong, but generally believes, um, then you would expect, I've seen one data set showing that on average, 11 months after the last hike is when the first rate cut happens. And I've seen other data showing that it's a few months before that. So that actually puts us between March and June as to when you would expect on average, a first rate cut to occur if there's going to be a rate cut and if we don't hike anymore and they've stopped hiking already, right? And so for now, that's kind of my base case is that I think we're gonna see cuts, You know, I just have to go with that as a base case. That being said, I am concerned that this time, because of the fact that this is a very unusual, like high inflation scenario that's higher than normal, um, they could wait longer than normal, longer than average in the past to actually reduce rates. And um, the other thing you have to note is that, you know, you can look at the betting odds on Wall Street and all this stuff and all the media opinions and everybody on the guests, uh, guests on those shows and hear what they have to say. But in reality, the Fed has been extremely clear about its path from the beginning. It's if you just read what the Fed says and the Powell says in its prepared remarks, and you don't actually stray from that, you will personally feel like right now they're going to keep rates higher for longer because that's what they've said. And if you take that as a base case assumption, that means they're going to go past the average time frame, which is past June, say, right? 
And so could we see rate cuts in the second half of June under that scenario? Yeah, for sure. But I want to remind everybody, and I'll stop at this. The only reason that the Fed will, will reduce rates in this type of environment is because they have to. And putting an election aside and political pressure aside, which we could talk about because that's a possibility as to why they may need to. Otherwise, the only reason why they'll have to is a recession, is economic problems, is some type of, you know, break in the system. And I think a lot of people are like hoping for this rate cut because it might help their current scenarios, but they're forgetting that the reason why the rate cut will come is because we're going to be in a very bad place. There's a lot of great wisdom in what you just said. Let me just add a couple of comments and some follow-up questions. Uh, so I concur that they have made it very clear they want more time if, between decisions. And uh, if their decision is, is still hold rates flat and your 11 months time horizon before the first cut, historically, because it's average, there's volatility up and down, makes a lot of sense, right? We can, I've heard as early cuts as, as March and then uh, it could be well past uh, June before they do something. It, a lot depends on inflation. But inflation appears to be continually cooling based on what's what's been coming in. Um, again, we're recording this November 30th. Uh, PCE, one of their favorite data points came out, and it, it's moving in the right direction. They're not there yet, but if you give enough time, the trend is your friend, unless something fundamentally changes. So they've done enough where the they're going to break things. This is, this is what it feels like. They're going to break. Consumer feels like a consumer is tapped. The consumer is still spending like a drunken sailor. We'll see what happens during the holiday season, but it feels that way. But at some point, all that consumer power, once the consumer runs out of money, I, I, I don't know how the hard break would look like, but if, if there's a hard break, that might trigger them to act, right? I mean, I agree with you. If there's no data, uh, requiring them to take action. Why would they take action? So I'm I'm concurring with you. And then the follow-up question, feel free to put any, add any more commentary on the follow-up question. 10-year and two-year, the bond market has a mind of its own. And the mar bond market is gigantic. Fed sets obviously forward policy, but investors uh, decide whether they want to buy or sell bonds. So the bond market has been signaling that we've kind of hit, hit the peak on a 10-year around 5%. And they, it's retreated from the peak fairly fast, from middle of October until now, it dropped about 70 basis points. I didn't check what, what what's happening on the market today, but it would appear that it's been fast to get to five and fast retreat, and things may slow down, but at least the, the bond market is pretty smart. It's one of the most liquid and most intelligent markets, although, of course, uh, sentiment makes a big difference. Yeah, and so the first thing I'll say is the bond market, just like the stock market, is forward-thinking, and I agree. I, I actually really think you have to pay a lot of attention to the bond market. Everybody, you know, the, the cumulative market is obviously very smart, right? So we're actually, today it's up a little bit, but it's at about 4.35 on the 10 year, okay? At, at least the last time I checked this morning. So, um, so we're down about 65 basis points since the peak and that's forward thinking. That's because if you look at um, the betting odds and everything else, people do believe that, that there's a high probability that the rates have stopped being hiked. Now everyone's focused on rates dropping. Um, and so, um, we're probably going to hear a lot about that for the next few months. When are rates going to drop? It's already started now in the last few weeks, right? Um, one thing I'll say about the consumer is that the best I can tell, and I, I say this because I don't think we're going to know until the Q4 GDP figures, but the best I could tell, um, first of all, Walmart and Target, retail sales are down tremendously. Like all major big box retailers that reported, or a lot of them, well, not all of them, but a lot of them, were down 2 two to 9% year over year retail sales. That's not even inflation adjusted. 
So the consumer is finally tapped out. It seems as though it happened in October once the student loans came back. It was also the end of like the employee retention tax credit and some other things. And all happened at the same time, as, as well as the pandemic savings that were pretty much drained between June and October, depending on what data you looked at, right? So it all happened at the same time. And now there seems to be a huge, all of a sudden, like a huge stop in the consumer spending. In Q3 data that we saw, the GDP was very strong. But if you actually parse into the data, the, the spending of consumers was only about 2.5% annualized GDP growth for that. The government spending added about another 3.5%. Okay. The government spent a ton of money in the Q3, and that's how we got that very strong GDP print. But I think that that is currently tapped out, at least temporarily. And that, that's, I think, one of the wild cards for 2024, by the way, for a recession is, is the government going to spend a lot more money in an election year to help prevent looking at recession numbers like in the media to prevent that. So we'll have to see. Right. But going back to your point, I think that the drunken sailors are done. Um, and I think that now we're going to have to watch. I think this is finally like it's, you know, it usually takes 18 months for the rate cuts to really start to take into like, uh, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, 18 months from the first rate increase until it takes really full effect. And that actually was September, theoretically, on average, right? So now we're really seeing the rate cuts take effect. Sorry, the rate increases take effect. And the consumers tapped out. It's all happening at the exact same time. So I'm very bearish on the consumer's ability to continue spending. Um, and then we can also talk about another thing, which is really, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, Ray Dalio talks about the end of empires and the long cycles. And he yes. talks about how the, one of the last pieces of the dominoes to fall in that reaction chain reaction is actually a reduced standard of living. And I personally believe that we've already now just experienced in the last two years, a reduced standard of living about 10 to 15%. If you compare wage growth to actual real inflation growth, right? And it might even be higher than that. And so I think there's a, a permanent not going back to, you know, reduction of 10 to 15% in standard of living. It's also impacting the middle and lower class that's just now really affecting them at the moment now that everything's tapped out. There's a lot of these factors that are breaking things, what you're talking about, they're breaking the consumer essentially. Yeah. And consumer, if I remember correctly, is two thirds of the U.S. economy. And Yeah, about uh, 70%. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, from a political perspective, um, the new Speaker of the House and the political pressure, of course, they kicked the can down the road on the budget, but there's going to be all kinds of pressure and the current rules that can remove the Speaker rather easily might force uh, tougher action on the, on the budget. So even if the government can't really keep up, and honestly, if you know, taking a political perspective, uh, if Republicans want to win the White House, they, they want the economy to suffer. I mean, normally the year of the election when the economy suffers, uh, the president, uh, the White House seat changes. So the probability is, is that the government uh, will be experiencing some pressure from the conservative side not to get too aggressive. And if a consumer is broken and the government doesn't play along, now we are into a solid recession and then the Fed is going to have to ease because things are breaking way faster than... They, they, they signaled in the past, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and so the next point to make then from all that, which I think is imperative, is that uh, I, most people I don't think know this. So basically, it, when we have a recession, often the stock market crashes. To what degree it depends. Each, each reduction is different in size, right, each time. And when that happens on average is actually one to three months after the first rate cut, after the first rate cut. And, and that domino then causes consumer... Um, concern. Uh, people are scared. 
Um, even investors who invest in on this side of the fence that we're in, who are investing in real estate and syndications, um, they're going to get concerned. They're going to kind of ratchet back. They're going to look at their stock market portfolio from their diversification, and they're going to invest less. And to me, like peak fear is going to occur as a result at that timing. And so for anyone who thinks that we've had, okay, interest rates climb, there's been a crash in, in real estate prices. I, I like using the word crash. I start using that on all the podcasts because you would read it in the media if the stock market crashed 30%, but when apartments are down 30%, no one's talking about crash. They're talking about an adjustment. It's not really an adjustment. It's a crash. And so um, the, the real estate uh, the stuff we invest in is crashed, but that's only one of the two dominoes. The second domino was a recession impact on that as well, which hasn't happened. And a lot of the investors I talked to for whatever reason, and the general sponsors, I don't hear people talking about a recession and the impact of a recession yet. And I think that's the one piece people are missing for 2024. It's a very interesting perspective. So um, are you seeing that the apartment prices are down on average at 30%? Because we've seen such a low transaction volume that it's it's difficult to figure out what the market looks like. Um, are, are, you, are you seeing that much of a correction in general? Yes. Is it market specific? Certain markets no. are a lot more cyclical versus the steady markets. So what I would say, and I'm, uh, you know, like generalizing and obviously depends and everything else, but, uh, you know, take Texas as a market. Okay. A lot of people invest in Texas. Best I can tell, um, class A is down like 15 to 20%. Class B is down 20 to 25%. Class C is down 25 to 30%. I've actually seen more than that on the transactions that have actually taken place. Um, and, um, I don't know if you're familiar with James. Do you know James Eng? I don't know James. Okay. Definitely look him up, ENG. Uh, everyone, everyone listening as well. He has a YouTube channel. He um, is a partner at the largest um, apartment um, real estate brokerage, like apartment lending brokerage for syndications in Texas. And he actually has monthly updates on his channel, discusses what he's truly seeing because he's also an LP investor, but he also sees everything. He sees all these transactions, all this distress. He's in the middle of trying to figure all this out for these sponsors. He's a great person to follow. That's one of the sources I follow to get that type of information. And he'll know exactly what's going on as an example, right? And he shares it. So that's actually what's occurring. Yeah. So let's take that. I appreciate that sharing, uh, you are better educated, better informed than me. So I'll, I'll acknowledge that, and and uh, I will absolutely um, proceed with with that assumption for this discussion. So if we are seeing a substantial correction, uh, we've been penciled down on equity period. We've done uh, very few equity deals. The only equity deal we've done this year was open air shopping plaza purchase from a distressed REIT, right? So it was already distressed purchase, and it's it's open air shopping. With a positive cap rate spread between interest rate, we bought it in May, and the whole thing was really good because the rates were perfect. Yep, but yep. to make long story short, uh, the only thing we're doing is mass debt. We're basically doing between the equity and primary debt on a projects that make great sense, that feel like there is enough uh, money in between. What are you doing? I'm just curious. What are you doing? What are you investing into? You, you personally, what are you seeing? Where are you seeing the opportunities? Um, and the follow-up question, when do you think it's going to be the right opportunity to go into equity. Because right now we've seen prices retreat and let's just call them around 30% the way you uh, you described. But uh, at which point makes sense to, to come in? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, one of the big frustrations I have in it, just in general is that real estate moves very slow compared to the stock market, much, much slower. And so what I am essentially doing is waiting, right? So I'm in heavily in treasuries and I've been in treasuries for about a year, year and a half almost now with interest rates having gone up, uh, short-term laddering. I probably the only obvious investments I've done, and I, I've, I, there's always exceptions, just like one you pointed out for yourself, but the only obvious ones that I feel like I would do an average one is a really good tax abated multifamily deal. Um, along with, I've done some ATM investing this year that I think is still in the clear because I've, I've been in the last recession with my ATMs and they did okay. Um, but from a real estate perspective, I'm mostly on the sidelines. I'm frustrated to have to wait, but you know, I, I like to tell people that I actually was on the phone with somebody yesterday and he's selling a business and he's hell bent. He's cashing out of a medical uh, business he built up and he's just hell bent on getting cash flow going, right? He's like really, really wanting cash flow. So my question to him was, it's November of 2007 and there's a recession coming next year. What's the best investment for cash flow for you right now? And that silenced him, right? Because in reality, nothing. And that's kind of how I feel at the moment. The one thing that we've already discovered is, uh, is the impact of interest rate increases. The thing we haven't discovered yet, which I mentioned before, which is why I'm waiting, is the second domino, which is a recession. Will we have a recession? How will it impact prices? How will it impact revenues? We know expenses are continuing to go up. So there's a big risk, I think, that if we have a recession, revenues down, expenses up. This is the typical recessionary playbook. Vacancies up and you have lower NOIs. And with lower NOIs, and by the way, let's compound that with stock market potential crash if there's a recession, more investor fear, less equity available to invest. And now you have lower prices as a result, meaning cap rates are up because there's less demand and you have NOIs lower. You have a compounded effect of prices going down. That's what I'm trying to avoid. Whether all that's going to happen, I don't know. But given probabilities and risks, I have to wait. So I'm just mostly waiting um, and just sitting and waiting, honestly. Yeah, and I appreciate that view. And that, that's a typical recession. We've seen on the cost side, uh, we've seen some really unprecedented changes in the cost of insurance. Uh, the, the whole industry has, has suffered uh, as insurance is through the roof. So yep. there's been significant uh, changes there. And recession will obviously weaken the demand. So from that perspective, everything you said makes sense. So for the correction or, because the prices are forward uh, in, indicate. So let's just call it this way. The real estate moves slow. The current prices are based on the fact that the interest rates have been very high and the credit has been very tight, right? Yep. Supply demand has been kind of, the math has worked this way. Now, if people get confidence that the Fed is done, the only way to go is now to start easing. Now, when is obviously the next question? And the 10-year treasury and two-year treasury, they'll, it'll be, let's say they continue to move in the right direction, in the direction of reduction of the yield. Then uh, maybe it's the right time to consider coming in if you get the right deal. Again, this is equity, uh, or it's just better to sit and wait. And then I go back to the question, uh, and you, you, you made it very clear. You're sitting in treasuries with, with ladder portfolio. Uh, have you considered any mass debt opportunities where uh, it's like a rescue capital or it's a, not, even even if it's yeah. not rescue capital, the deal is totally fine. It just needs liquidity gap. I'll tell you this and give you an example where kind of mass debt opportunity is creating, the asset itself is solid, but the first lien lender is not just, it's not DSCR. You can't meet those ratios. So they're giving very light LTV because of DSCR problems. So you're seeing first loans very limited. And then the, they need to do some kind of mass debt. Otherwise, they can't they, they can't make the numbers work. If it's not called mass debt, it's pref equity or something like that. 
Right, right, right. So there's two reasons why I haven't done any of that. And look, there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. I'm just highly, highly conservative. Okay. So number one, I typically invest equity as opposed to prep equity. We'll call it prep instead of meds. I call it prep equity, right? Because it's one of the parts of meds debt or the one of the structures being commonly used right now for that purpose. Um, because I typically invest in the low risk equity type of investment. And as a result, I want to get upside if there's going to be upside, right? I'd rather at least know I'm going to participate in upside. So that's why I don't typically do prep equity, but I also invest for predictability and I typically invest for a longer term. And right now, even though I think the risk reward for some pref equity and mes debt may be good, um, to me, there's a lack of predictability with where everything's going. And that lack of predictability is what typically keeps me on the sidelines, right? Because I'm the kind of guy that wants to clip the coupon, not that wants to foreclose on the property or take over on the equity and then work it out and figure it out and be in an okay business because that's, that's not predictable to me. It's probably a good outcome for somebody, but it's not a predictable outcome, right? So that's why I sit on the sidelines for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That is a absolutely great point. So the yields are still pretty high on, on treasuries and it's, it's it's rewarding to sit on the sidelines and avoid, especially if yeah. you're an ultra conservative investor like you and um, you're not looking for the right risk adjusted return, you're looking for perfect safety, So which makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Mike, though, because I really haven't looked into these seriously. In the in the mes debt opportunities you're seeing when you come in, what is a cumulative LTV that where you are sitting in the capital stack that that's basically, you know, what, what is your risk? What is that cumulative LTV you're dealing with? So, give you an example. We we have a mes debt deal we're, we're coming up. It's a uh, one of the best properties in Indianapolis. All the rehab has been done. Uh, it's almost a thousand doors. Institutional quality, large asset. Uh, in great location, gated community, just phenomenal uh, property. And we're doing uh, basically CLTV between the first and the second. On the as-is basis, is 75%. And the on the ARV basis, it's below 70 And I mean, the ARV is that the property has been rehabbed, but the leases haven't cycled up enough. So it just needs to go through uh, renewals. To It takes about you know another year, maybe two, to get to the market rents. So that, that's what we're seeing in what we're charging on the deal, uh, we're putting the deal together, is 18% return to investors, 10 current pay, and eight uh, deferred. So that, that's what the package looks like. Okay. With a, with so, a, with, with a very, very uh, experienced, one of the very sophisticated uh, sponsors who we believe are, that they're very capable to uh, get the property to the finish line. So when you say as is at the current value, so it's basically at the current value with the current cap rates, correct? We believe that the current valuation on that property, just give you some numbers. Um, the first is 117 million. We are working to raise 7 million in the mass debt, total 124. With the current um, as is uh, valuation of about 160, maybe 165 million. And then okay. future value 180, 185. Uh, okay. And again, future value is not dependent on heavy construction. It's just the, uh, the leases need to uh, renew. So I, I don't know how else to describe it. There are other uh, mitigating circumstances. Nonetheless, um, we are not assuming the cap rates will contract. It's just more of a more realistic view based on current. The, the way the math works is you look at the 10-year treasury, you add typically 200 basis points, and you sort of operate with that as a, as a cap rate. Yep. Okay. Got it. That all makes sense. I was curious because... You know, the one thing I think you need to, to account for, which you already have in that equation clearly, is the possibility that NOI goes down, rents go down, and you're still in the clear, which it sounds like you're probably going to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, 
will the NOI go down? Will the rents come down? And it's a one, it's a, it's a concern, of course, in the, uh, in the recession. But at the same time, it's kind of a funny that you mentioned this. And I do believe that uh, these things move in tandem. Some people have talked, well, we, what if we have re recession and interest rates stay very high? What does that mean? That is a stagflation scenario. Typically, the, there needs to be very significant inflation to, for the interest rates to stay high, for the Fed to be able to to, to justify their, their, their existence, in essence. Yeah. And then the recession on the economy, and that is a stagflation. That, that's your classic kind of definition. But stagflations don't last a long time. And normally, when you start seeing that recession and the rent starts falling, and you, you start to use the word, the D word, deflation, I mean, the numbers start going to deflation, the Fed starts panicking. They, they, they usually move the rates down fast. At least you get the relief on a debt cost. And typically, the relief on a debt cost is way faster than the, the little bit of a drop in the rent. We've seen the reverse on the other side. So when the Fed push rates up, especially on floating rate mortgages, people are getting destroyed from the fast-risen cost of debt service while they are still renovating and they're improving their, right? If yes. the picture changes and the Fed drops their pants and then they start moving the rates down faster, then you got uh, accelerated uh, benefit of rate, rates changing faster than the NOI. That, yep. that's, that, that's my two cents. T totally get it. Totally get it. So, but I, I hear your warning, right? Recession, it's kind of like this. You really can't have Fed um, be both. Because um, they have dual mandate. We've talk, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common sense. It's the inflation and then full employment. The employment seems to be in a weird state. We're still dealing with the full employment. And that's why maybe consumer has been, has been pretty strong because of the full employment. But if the consumer data is weakening and recession is is mathematically at this point pretty likely, then uh, there's got to be um, a wake up call for the Fed. It, it, it's almost inevitable. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, and, and by the way, a lot of people don't don't really consider the fact that we bottomed out a three point five percent unemployment rate. We're already at three point nine. Once you get to four point oh, and any fifty basis points or higher, literally one hundred percent of the time in the past, there's always been a recession. And so we're already almost to the point where the increase in the unemployment rate is going to lead to a recession on its own. We're not quite there, but I also think that we're in the early stages of seeing the unemployment hit um, in that, like, because consumers just start to really clamp down the call it October, if that's accurate or correct, you're still going to, it's going to take months until we see that unemployment play out. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, the other thing, and again, this goes back to, I think Ray Dalio's views and it, it, it's, it's like, Everything you said makes total sense. We had the late stage, I think it's called phase five, right? Hopefully we don't get into phase six. The phase <laughs> six is when you have uh, blood in the streets, people start. Yeah. Uh, but we're still in phase five, so there's still some hope. Uh, uh, so, But I, I go back to this. In the modern few years, in the modern uh, arena, tolerance of pain is so low. If the tolerance of pain is very low, once we start seeing uh, recession uh, data, the Fed is going to have to uh, it's going to have to be a lot more responsive, unless it's stagflation. Because if you're if you're looking at a pretty bad GDP, employment problems, unhappy people, uh, I don't think they're going to try to interfere with the election year. So politics aside, they 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 still have to do their job. And then um, will they will it take action faster? If inflation is under control. And unemployment is now over four percent. Consumer is is suffering. People are complaining about it. What's going to happen? 
right? It's just going to have to be way faster than people are projecting. 11 months projection might might be, again, 11 months average, maybe in this case, it'll be instead of 11, maybe it'll be eight, nine, who knows? Yeah, I agree. But I think the key of what you're talking about is that in order for all that to happen, things have to be very bad, right? And if things get very bad, then in that time frame, obviously, as real estate owners and investors, we should expect things to get worse than they are right now for us as well. Agreed. Yeah. So uh, buckle up, right? We've got to buckle up. If you're an equity player, yes. unfortunately, the pain is still there. The headwinds from these high interest rates are still there. And even if they take action, I think the earliest I've seen on the projections, and uh, and I think you mentioned this, the earliest is March. And, and if they do, they're probably going to go slow. They're going to do a quarter and say, we need more data, right? So the relief may not be gigantic until a lot more pain is felt, something like that. Yeah, I would urge everybody to, rather than read the headlines of what you're going to read on CNBC everywhere else, when the Fed makes its next statement, read what Powell says, because the change of verbiage that may or may not occur will be very telling as to what's probably going to happen, because they have stuck to the script the whole time. They really have. So and the, minutes, all you, the, the, the minutes of the Fed meeting is what we want to read. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah but I would even... Even more specifically, the Powell's prepared remarks when they have the day that they're deciding if they're going to raise or pause or drop, read those, his words. I mean, literally, if you just read his words and looked at a change statement or some type of a markup, sometimes some of the articles show markup, but they'll show like this word change, that word change, and you read nothing else, you would be educated enough on, you know, being able to guide what to pay attention to going forward. Interesting. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Uh, I certainly love listening. I, I've turned on uh, CNBC and watch while while he speaks. Uh, yeah. For no other reason that it's very intelligent talk. And Jay Powell talk is not uh, Alan Greenspan or Bernanke. He doesn't talk um, uh, conundrum language. He actually is a lot easier to understand. So yeah, that's a good point. Actually, yeah. Yeah, Alan Greenspan. Unless you have a PhD in economics, it was a little bit of a of a strange experience listening to him. While Jay Powell is a little bit more plain language, uh, a lot easier to understand. Yeah. Um, let's continue. Just a couple more points. I know we we're probably running out of time, but uh, just a few more quick um, uh, questions. So, uh, what would be a good trigger to uh, go into equity? And you said again, you if when you go into equity. Uh, you want to go into defensive, conservative investing, kind of Warren Buffett-like, um, uh, making sure that there is substantial margin of safety. And um, what do you think is going to, in your view, how, how do you know that you have a great deal that's worth writing a check? I'm just, I'm just, just, just basically fundamental, uh, fundamental philosophy. How do you know this is the right time to go in? This is a great purchase. Yeah. This is a great deal. Yeah, look, nobody ever knows the exact perfect timing. I think it's really impossible, like for, for with some 100% certainty. But I will say this. One of the things I've been watching carefully for years now that I'm continuing, and especially now, is positive leverage. And you touched upon this in a deal that you did recently in the retail, right? Positive leverage. I, I, I'll give you an example. I looked at a, a mobile home park deal, and I've invested in mobile home parks for many, many years now. And I looked at a deal yesterday. It was a pretty large. It was a, a small portfolio of like, maybe six, 700 lots being 80% to 90% occupied, stabilized, a little bit of value at upside. They're buying it at a 4.4 .4 cap or whatever. And the rate on the loan was six. 
six something, right? That's negative leverage by 150 plus basis points. To me, as an investor who's conservative, that is always a non-starter. Um, it, the negative leverage to me just doesn't make sense because in the way I invest in stabilized deals with sometimes no value add or little value add, um, you know, there's an argument you made if you're adding a ton of value, you can afford to buy it in negative leverage and then add the value, right? And you're taking that risk, you're getting the reward. For someone like me, I'm looking for like 150, 125, 150 basis points positive spread on the leverage. And I get that in tax abated uh, type of opportunities when someone's converting a market rate to a tax abated type structure. I've been getting that actually since 2020 in those structures. Well, everything else has been negative leverage. And so that to me is a number one marker of like, are we as limited partner investors in equity, common equity, being compensated for the risk, the risk premium? And that's the number one thing I would urge people to look at, which I think a lot of people don't look at, unfortunately. And until that starts looking positive in a meaningful way, I've seen some class C deals that are positive 40, 50 basis points, you know, sometime throughout the year. But I'm looking, I typically look at class B plus A minus for myself. And I expect that to occur in the A minus B plus properties, not, not necessarily the C properties, I would expect potentially even more. But um, that is a, one of the most important indicators, in my opinion. Yeah, I concur with you, and I, I greatly respect what you just said. It's just very difficult to get uh, in this environment. In fact, uh, for Class A properties, it's almost sounds like a mission impossible. For Class C, maybe you could find, and, and certainly other asset classes, not multifamily. You go into open-air shopping, which is yes. which still trades yeah. at a pretty pretty good positive spread between the cap yeah. rate and then the debt service. But in this environment, um, we're, we're still dealing with uh, high cost, uh, even though the 10-year treasury is retreated, you're still dealing with in, in increased spreads. So the, the banks are um, concerned uh, about the volatility. So the spreads over the 10-year have gone up. And as a result, in this environment, you're not getting great positive leverage unless it's a phenomenal deal or some asset class that's just not multifamily. So I'm just trying to think of this scenario. Um, either interest rates have to fall significantly or cap rates have to expand significantly for the scenario to work right otherwise you just can't get there that's right you're right and um that that's that's the, the bid ask spread challenge that always happens it takes a long time to adjust and that's why i mentioned you know if this goes as probability would tell you we're gonna have a recession next year we're gonna have a stock market crash we're gonna have peak fear prices are gonna have to come down for deals to close much more so let even put interest rates and spreads aside from that. That's not even has nothing to do with that, right? I'm talking talk about prices have to come down because the equity won't be there. And that will start to close the gap and potentially create the positive leverage. I'm giving you all theory. A thousand things could be different or changed, but that's the theory about what could happen and how that could happen. Yeah, I appreciate your wisdom and only the time will show, right? Yes. There's been another conversation and there's a lot of money uh, has been, um, let's just call it accumulated on sidelines. Yeah, come in and and looking for blood in the streets, and and you hear this large fund is raised, that large fund is raised, and they're not transacting, so they're sitting on 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 cash, probably in treasuries, and waiting for it. But uh, when are they going to act, and to what degree? Yeah, so I I agree that uh, probably on the institutional side, for institutional size deals, that does exist to an extent. I also believe that once there's peak fear, some of that will get reduced, and some will be pulled out. That being said. I feel it's the exact opposite on the non-institutional side. 
In fact, if you take a look at how much equity is available to be raised in a typical uh, syndicator or sponsor two years ago versus today, that number is on average 33 to 50%, meaning it's reduced 50 to 66% in terms of what they can raise today versus two years ago. You add on the additional layer of that second domino falling of a recession and peak fear, that number is going to be lower. There is no money on the sidelines for non-institutional. I mean, of course there is, but there's no like major piles of money on the sidelines. There's a lot less equity on the sidelines than there was, and it'll be even less if we hit a peak fear scenario. So on the non-institutional side, I completely disagree with that. On the institutional side, that's definitely possible. I don't really invest on that side of things. By the way, that's a brilliant point. And we've spoken at a conference and we sat down and we chatted. And I remember what you said, this recession, this whole experience, is going to leave a lot of people with, let's just call it death by a thousand cuts. It's going to take them out completely out of investing in these syndications. They're just going to be scarred so badly. They're going to say hell with it. I don't know what they're going to do, but they're just going to leave. And I think I'm hearing you on the non-institutional side for more, for more small deals and whatever it is, it's, but just non-institutional quality. So whatever the deal size, a hundred doors, maybe 150, 200 doors, that uh, and in, not in New York, in the smaller markets, that the big players just don't don't play in. Uh, getting capital raised from uh, individual investors, like you said, is, is a magnitude harder now than fifty fifty percent, thirty percent. It's it's a lot harder, and that probably will be persistent for quite a while. While my sincere hope is institutional money will be still looking at institutional quality assets, and we are trying to do most of our business with those type of assets because the demand for higher quality um, product uh, should should be should be solid in, in, in predictable markets. But that's a great point. That, I don't know if you have any more commentary, but a lot of people are scarred. A lot of yeah. people are scarred and I don't think they're gonna come back anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, so a couple of things about that. So first of all, I don't believe we're at peak difficulty of raising equity from accredited investors call it, right? I don't think we're there yet because of what I was saying before. I think that's gonna be when you have peak fear. Um, but what we talked about, and just for those listening, yeah, I think it was back in maybe March of this year at a conference um, where we met up and talked about that. What I was telling Mike is that what's so fascinating about what's happened this cycle for the accredited investors, it, so the non-institutional investors, is, you know, as an LP investor, I get stuff across all assets. I invest across most major asset class. I've been investing over 20 years. So I have a big network. I get a lot of stuff, right, as just an individual investor now. And I would just guess that I don't have the real data, but my guess is that um, in 2021 and 22, uh, 90% uh, plus, and probably the second half of 20, 2020, um, 90% plus of everything I received was multifamily, floating rate bridge loan opportunities. That's almost all that was available to LP investors during that time. That was a major focus for sponsors. And they were just go, go, go. And that's almost, so if you invested in something as an LP investor during that time, Almost certainly you invested in one or many of those, right? And actually, I did not invest in any of those. Uh, but but I know many people who have, obviously, because again, and let me repeat this. If you've invested in 21 or 22 as an LP investor, if you did a deal, it was high, high probability, one or one deal or all the deals you did were multifamily floating rate bridge loan. And what's happening with those deals right now? They've either stopped paying cash flow, have requested cash calls, have PREF equity coming in without a right of first refusal ahead of the person diluting them, um, or worse, you know, uh, default, distress, foreclosure. And we haven't, and by the way, that's going to be a peak problem probably between middle of 24 or second half of 24 and 26, right? Just in terms of when the loans were taken. We'll have to see how those work out. If they're worked out, they're full close, you know, that, that, 
That has not been played out yet. But but meanwhile, if you're an investor, an LP investor, and you're not getting the cash flow that you were projecting you were going to get in what you thought was a lower risk opportunity, you're maybe even having to put some cash into it, maybe even getting diluted and maybe even getting foreclosed. And you're kind of new to the space. There was a lot of new people to the space because of all the advertising that was done in the public solicitation of 506C deals in the last few years. Um, are you going to continue investing here or are you done? You're getting the death by a thousand cuts we're talking about. That's what we were talking about, right? So this particular cycle is very unusual, in my opinion, because there is such a concentration of LP capital that went into these deals that are now having challenges that a lot of them, like a huge proportion of them are experiencing challenges. And as a result, it's going to be even more difficult now going forward for sponsors to raise, fund, raise funds in peak um, fear time than even a normal peak fear time because of that death by a thousand cuts that a lot of people are experiencing. So it's very unfortunate, but I just want to make sure everybody got that whole picture because it's a really unique time for that. Yeah, great, great point, Jeremy. It's a tidal wave. All the problems happen to ha take place at the same time because the effect of the floating rate debt uh, is all happening at the same time. And many of them brought rate caps, some didn't. And if you didn't buy rate cap, it's worse. If you bought a rate cap, it, it, it it's it's a little better but those rate caps will expire, right? Yep. And, and the other very interesting point, which is still incredibly difficult, when these capital calls or the computations are made, the most difficult part is what the hell these properties are worth in the future because the interest rate volatility and what the cap rate is going to be and the interest rates do, and cap rates on a long-term basis move in the right direction, in the, in the, in the same direction, but in the short duration, it's supply demand. Cap rates are a function of what's happening on the market. Yes. Uh, even interest rates can retreat, but the fear might still be accumulating and the prices may continue to fall and the cap rates may continue to expand even though the rate's starting to fall. So, yeah, I mean, you, you just described a tidal wave scenario and then this tidal wave is, is already hitting people and it's going to continue to hit. It's hitting, but I consider it only the bottom half of the first inning because... To your point, a lot of these deals that were done in 21-22 had two or three-year rate caps. A lot of them had three-year rate caps and are only going to hit their peak challenge in mid-2024 to 2025. And then we're going to have to see if a lot of lenders extend or renegotiate loans or foreclose. And we'll have to see the shape of all those situations. And by the way, unfortunately, some of the cuts that were the thousand cuts are going to occur because of recession, right? Revenue down, that makes it even more challenging to work something out with that deal. And so, um, you know, and going back to what we talked about before with positive leverage, if you really think about it, if all this plays out, then peak opportunity for new investors is between the second half of 24 for multifamily and 26, call it right? All the way through to 26. So there's, and there's plenty of time. And I should have mentioned this before you asked about timing. I personally would always prefer to be a little late than a little early in real estate because it moves slowly. So I don't really feel like I'm going to miss out on that much by being slightly late, right? Prices aren't adjusting in huge quantities very quickly, typically. And that's why this is taking so long right now in the downturn. And so I'm not going to miss an upturn really by waiting an extra half year or whatnot. Um, and, and so, but I've seen people get burned going in too early in the last cycle. I've seen people literally go bankrupt by going into early and hard money lending on single family flips last time when they were like, oh, this is down, this market's down 30%. I'm in the clear at my 70% loan to value loan. Next thing you know, the market down another 30%, you know, in the tertiary markets of California where I am uh, within another year and they're, they're done. So um, keep all that in mind. Yeah, the wisdom you just said, don't try to catch a falling knife. 
uh, unfortunately, exactly. you want to see the market hit the button and 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 stabilize and at least be clear that this is that we already hit the button. So, I hear you. I know we're past the time, but this will probably wind up being two episodes because it's just let's just continue for another couple of minutes and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up. So sure. this is this is a great wisdom, of course. Um, only future will show. Um, so, from a conservative investor perspective, um, just still sit on your hands, sideline. Of course, of co- a few possibly tax advantage deals with massive tax benefits, like you mentioned in Texas, as an affordable housing projects. They make sense in many parts of the country. If you get phenomenal tax benefits, that that can be worth uh, significant because it, it strengthens NOI. It, it removes the tax. Oh, burden for many huge. years and it can solve the entire you know the NOI looks a whole lot better because of, of that so yep. that aside um, you just sit and wait continue to sit and wait continue to sit and wait uh, Look, here, here's the issue and by the way let me add one more point and I think you alluded to this back to the tidal wave so diversification has many dimensions and uh, asset class location who you invest with and so on but there's also time most people don't realize diversifying yeah. and tying is just as important and many people missed that point they were doing so well they were building up their nasdaq they they went through syndications in 15 16 17 18 19 they kept making a lot of money and they kept reinvesting is because it has worked and then they build the nest nasdaq and suddenly the whole thing is getting annihilated so it, it's it's kind of one of these things where lessons learned you just have to prepare to diversify in time you just never know and i don't know i would love to hear some thoughts on this uh i like to say you have to you have to respect the market cycle and what i mean by that is that um you know you this goes back to that person i had a call with yesterday who is selling their business and they want cash flow today and my question to you is it's november of 2007 in terms of cycle time right what what makes sense to you right now and then he realized nothing you have to respect the market cycle timing. And so um, there's always opportunities. You were talking about one you found earlier this year. We could get into specific asset classes. I could tell you, for example, that having I'm still invested in, in many different retail strip centers, but I stopped investing in those in 2015. As of about 2016, they started to adjust because of the Internet effect. They had their own adjustment back in 16, 17, 18. So if you're looking now at some of those, that's all. That's actually why I've seen some myself as well. You're seeing positive leverage in those, which can make sense if you're into retail, you like retail. That's a little more difficult for someone like me because, again, I'm looking for like long-term predictability of demand. And, it, you know, there's a lot of predictable demand in grocery stores and stuff, but it's very hard to find the exact right center with the exact right tenant base, especially to get through a recession, you know. Um, but the point is that like some uh, there's always opportunities out there. So I'll give you some examples. Um, I say I'm on the sidelines, but. Um, what I have invested re- recently, ATM fund in uh, August, I did two venture funds. I mean, if you take a look at, uh, we're not talking about this really as actively on this podcast, but I mean, venture valuations are crushed, like crushed. About technology, you're talking about technology, yeah. not Any really startup, thing. just startups, right? Startup investing. I don't do much of it, but I just invested in two venture funds because now is the time to get fantastic valuation. And a lot of great companies start during recessionary periods where employees are much more available and it's much less costly, very hard to raise funds, but there's some excellent opportunities, right? So I just invested in a couple of those just in the past couple of months, uh, friends of mine are running. Um, we talked about treasuries, I'm trying to think, uh, God, it's been, it's been really tough this year. I did several tax abated apartment deals earlier this year 
I uh, haven't done much in the second half of you. That's kind of dried up a little bit. What else? I'm always miss stuff when I talk about this because I'm always doing stuff. But the point is that it's not like I'm not looking at deals. I'm still actively looking at deals. Um, and if the right deal comes my way, I'm going to do it. But it has to like line up. It has to likely do well during a recession. It has to be a very defensive play. Um, you know, one thing you didn't mention about the tax abated deals, because I know you kind of uh, went, mentioned it very quickly, is that there's two things I really love about them. One is that because NOI drastically increases when you change the structure to the tax abated structure and you're reducing the taxes to almost zero, um, it's a defensive. To me, it's a defensive play. Some people think, oh, it's a great deal. I'm getting into huge value add play. No, for me, it's a defensive play because I expect values to go down further, but you're creating so much padding at closing the padding is going to create that gap you need to protect yourself from a reduction. I'm not even in it because it's increased. It's like, I'm just looking at it to counter the decrease. But furthermore, because typically in those deals, half the units become income restricted. And so they're below and they end up below market rents by definition. You are probably the number one in demand during a recession because you're lower than market rates across half of your units, right? Now you're restricted on the upside, but it's a defensive play going into the down cycle. That's actually why I've been investing in low-income housing tax credits since 2017. It was purely defensive going into a recession. And the same thing with tax abatement, where now you get not only defensive going into recession, but you actually get increased value up front for padding to protect against reduction in value. So it's a very defensive play. It's not just that it's attractive with positive leverage, et cetera. Um, so I would caution anybody who's considering something right now to just think ahead, expect a recession as a probability, and just understand what you're getting into right now. Will it do well in a recession or not? Because that, there's a high probability that's coming up. Yeah, I love it. Uh, if, the downside protection in this environment is, is, is way more important than the upside. So whatever the deal, just like you're saying, uh, find what the downside protection is and be comfortable with that. Because if you don't, you, um, you're taking significant risk and it's, it's unclear uh, where you're going to wind up. So I, I agree with you on that front. Um, any final thoughts on, um, I remember again, back at the conference in March, <laughs> yeah. there was a talk about, uh, we just have to survive until 2025, right? Yes. This was the talk at the conference. Yeah. Now you're saying, well, it might be 26, uh, at least the opportunities to come in, uh, at the right pricing and the right timing. So is this still your opinion that it just that 25 became 26 or uh, it just we just don't know? I mean, this is all no, very no. fluid. Yeah, yeah. So sorry for any confusion. So what I was saying is I think the window of the prime purchasing opportunities will be between mid 24 and 26. OK, because I think that the peak distress is going to happen with the apartment opportunities between mid 24 and the end of 25. OK, in terms of when they're really going to hit the wall, if they're going to hit the wall. Um, so I want to clarify that. Um, that being said, the survive till 25 was the other side of the table. It's like, okay, you're a sponsor and you're in one of these opportunities, right? You're managing one of these opportunities, survive till 25, because that's when that the peak of that wall was going to hit that. That's why there's that whole mantra. So it's two different things we're talking about. Appreciate the clarification. One more point. So many deals we, we we've looked at today and this discussion is very difficult to control what the cap rate is going to be and when they're going to, I guess, bottom out or, or, or peak. Uh, the only thing we can control is uh, what we can control. So obviously uh, revenues, uh, expenses, and, and you pointed out it's the, the scenarios where expenses could be higher. 
and revenues could be lower because of a recession. But what's the path to refi? Refi means survive. If you can refi, you can survive. So where I'm leading with this is um, we've looked at some of the you know, deals with some challenges and we've been discussing. And one of the most fundamental questions, how can we get to refi point? Back to the discussion, you either get NOI up or you get the rates down or a mix of both to, to the point where you can refi and fix rate that, hold it, survive, right? If you can do that, then that greener posture is on the other side. Yes. So any thoughts and commentary on the whole refi strategy? You know, if the rates start moving down at a pretty decent clip, but of course we don't know that. And that's 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 a that's a hope, and hope is not a strategy. Nonetheless, uh I can't see significant recession um being here and the interest rates not adjusting accordingly. And the bond market may adjust way faster than the Fed. The Fed may be a little slow to do. But the bond market is way faster than the Fed. Um, I, I've heard the, this theory from a very, very smart gentleman. He's been on podcast. He, he likes to put, the, likes to say that. And some people will argue whether this is accurate or not. But he says that typically follows the bond market, not the other way around, because the bond market is predicting what Fed's going to do, and a lot smarter and faster. Yes. So, what do you think? Okay, so, and to be fair, I am not a good person to be answering this question only because I'm not really in these scenarios. So I, I'm not in any floating rate bridge loan apartment deals or anything. So I'm not, I haven't put a lot of thought into like a lot of time into thinking through these things. But I think that where the challenge is going to be is on the one hand, to your point, interest rates come down. You could see um, the cost of debt come down, which would be very helpful. On the other hand, you have revenues come down in a recession. And obviously, the most you could do to manage expenses will be as helpful as possible because if revenues come down and you really can't control that, the market's dictating that, then you can control potentially expenses and rein some of them in um, to help close the gaps because you want the highest NOI possible to be able to refi, right? That's kind of obvious, right? You can't control cap rates and we don't know where cap rates are going to be. My concern is that they're going to be higher because of peak fear and because let's face it, one thing we didn't talk about today you can definitely not expect lending to be looser if we have peak fear in a recession. It's only going to be the same or tighter, right? Banks are going to open up and like open their purse strings when everybody's scared and they're scared. So, and they're dealing with distress. So I think, you know, in this discussion, the most you can do to either add value somehow, whether it's finishing rehabs and getting tenants in or reducing expenses. So one side is increasing revenues, the other one's reducing expenses. Those are the two levers you can pull. I don't really see much more you can do aside from wait to see what happens with the market with interest rates with cap rates and see where that whole equation lands but again i'm not i'm not a the best person to ask for that question honestly yeah i appreciate it. and the value at execution is critical because the rents can make a big difference between what you charge uh, on the non-renovated versus renovated so if you can execute at least you put yourself in a better position to yep, get yep. the noi to even though it may, it may be reduced by the market but if you start with a thousand dollars a door and you wind up with $1,300 a door post-renovated and the market softens 13 to 1250 or to 12, you're still ahead of where you were. So it's a great right. point. But I'll say this, that, you know, I'm assuming a sponsor who is up against the ticking clock in terms of a refi is already highly motivated to take action as quickly as possible. But boy, I, I would also guess that adding in the probability of a recession. And so, you know, the sooner you get people in and lock in rental rates right now, the better off theoretically, because if we have a recession and rents go down, you are better off getting people in those units more quickly. I don't care even what type of asset it is, right? And getting them locked in 
to avoid having to lock them in at lower rental rates potentially. So, but I'm assuming that there isn't like a lack of motivation already if you're already facing a certain time time frame for a refi. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And and uh, there's another discussion, but of course it's 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 you know it's a speculative uh, point. But the banks they see a lot of um, distress and concern in theory that they may be a lot more receptive to forbearance and some kind of workouts to keep keep these deals from hitting defaulted loans and yes. setting aside large amount of reserves to cover the losses and the losses will be highly unpredictable. So we're already seeing some of that. I don't know if you've come across, banks are getting a lot more flexible and, and it's happening faster than, than we thought to be able to keep these things from formally you know, hitting the, the major reserve set aside type of exercise. Yeah, and that's one of the wild cards I call it at the moment is I don't take for granted that there won't be a lot of uh, work workouts and extensions and all this type of renegotiations because essentially as an investor, the difference between a lot of that and a little that happening is either a lot or a little in the way of volume of opportunity, right? And so I can't take for granted that there's going to be a ton of opportunity necessarily just because it's possible they may choose to do a lot of, of working out or extensions or whatnot. So that's something I'm waiting to see and we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. Jeremy, I appreciate your wisdom, and um, thank you again. Uh, every time we do this, <laughs> these episodes, uh, your brilliance comes out to the nth degree. So I'm I'm so grateful for you to come out. Uh, it's just uh, a lot of super great nuggets. Thank you for sharing. Uh, how would folks uh, reach out? Is there a good way uh, that folks could uh, approach you? Um, is there a website? How do you prefer folks to uh, to reach out? If you want to, if you don't. Uh, you can stay under the radar screen. So, no, absolutely no. First of all, thank you again for having me. I thank you for those who are still on with us listening here. Appreciate it. Hopefully, that was helpful for everybody who listened. Um, I don't have a website, so best way to reach me is my email, and anyone's welcome to reach out to me. So, my email address is jroll j r o l l at roll investments r o l l investments with an s so plural dot com. So, jroll at rollinvestments.com. Anyone's welcome to reach out to me. There's any any way I can help. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate that. Wishing you wonderful holidays. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund book, head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.